Good morning again. It is good to see you all. My family and I were on vacation for a couple weeks, and so it's good to be back. It's good we missed you guys. It's good to be back with you. And uh, while we were on vacation, we had a good time. We were at the beach for a little bit of that. And, you know, Amanda and I only need a little bit of marriage counseling coming back from it. I'll tell you my favorite moment, apropos of nothing related to the sermon, I'll tell you my favorite moment from vacation was, it was a little rainy one day at the beach, so we were at this place where you ride golf carts around uh, the streets and stuff, and so we decided we would do a scavenger hunt for the kids. So I planned it, I wrote it, and they had to go around. And so at the end of the scavenger hunt, my wife's, uh, the way it worked is all the teams would just text me when they'd solve a clue and get to a location, and then I would text them back the next clue, okay, solve this one. And so I was doing that, and her phone was almost dead, so I rode with her and her team in their cart, and we got to one thing, and we were getting towards the end. I mean, we were like the last clue or two, and she's in the lead, uh, she and her team, and my wife claims she's not competitive, she can no longer claim that. Uh, because we get there and I'm doing a little bit of work at the site and I don't get back in the cart fast enough so she just leaves me. And I have to run a half mile and she's like literally saying to the other teams as she zooms by them, somebody give Trent a ride. Because she was determined to win and she did win. And, but here's what happens is when you're me and you're running the half mile to get to the final like, destination of the scavenger hunt, you're mad at first because you're thinking, how could she leave me? And then the longer you run, the more impressed you are with your spouse. That's exactly what I would have done too. <laughs> so two or three sessions, marriage counseling, we should be good. We'll work it through. So, you know, the other thing that, that I think about sometimes when I go on vacation is, you know, we're, we're having a, a great time and obviously on vacation, it's a good thing. You're maybe a little more comfortable than maybe even in your daily life. You know, I mean, people are kind of attending to you. Maybe you're going out to eat a little bit more. And so it's comfortable and it gets you thinking. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Have you ever thought about how committed we sort of are to being comfortable? How committed is a society? How much time and energy we spend around the idea of being comfortable. I mean, we have dual climate zones in our cars so that you can be at 71 degrees while I'm at 70 degrees. I'm not sure why we think those molecules are not passing one another, but yet yeah, we, you know, the kids in the back are 69 degrees. So everybody, you know, I, don't put me at your 71 degrees. Okay. I need to be at my 70 degrees. The most recent example of this sort of comfort that I thought about is I bought a good product, but our thermostat broke in our house. So we needed to buy a new one. And as I did a little bit of research, I got one of those thermostats that you can control from your phone, right? So it's, you know, connected wirelessly. It's a great product, but it got me to thinking like, basically the commitment is I don't want to be too hot or too cold for even the 10 minutes that I walk into my house. When I've had the thermostat up from vacation, I need to get back and I need it to be at exactly the right temperature when I walk in the door because heaven forbid that I should be a little too hot for 10 minutes while the house is cooling down a little bit, right? I mean, so again, it's a fine product, nothing wrong with it, but it just gets me thinking about how committed we are to comfort. Any of you pretty committed to comfort and temperature levels in your house? Right, and the, you know, if you're married, it ensues when you get into bed and it's like somebody wants the fan on, fan off, you know, thermostat at this, thermostat at that. I, I'll let you in a little tidbit in our life. I have a fan that's about six inches from my face while we sleep, right? To just kind of cool me off. So anyway, Jesus today, as we journey through the Sermon on the Mount, is gonna talk to us about a spiritual discipline that has a lot to do with our comfort 
In fact, it's probably one that if I had to guess today, many of us don't participate in and maybe haven't given much thought to. And some of that might have to do with how uncomfortable this discipline tends to make us. Not uncomfortable emotionally, although it can do that, but physically uncomfortable. Jesus is going to talk to us today about the discipline of fasting and its merits and its benefits. And in particular, one of the dangers uh, of fasting is one of the things he's gonna talk to us about today. And so my encouragement to you, I recognize this may be unfamiliar territory for you. Uh, Maybe it's not a discipline that you're partaking of right now. Maybe it's one you've never partaken of. And so I wanna introduce you to it. And if you are partaking of it, I wanna remind you of the ways in which we partake of this discipline so that we are obeying the Lord and how he's given us this instruction. So let's look together in the Sermon on the Mount at Matthew chapter six, verses 16 through 18. Just three verses today, Matthew 6, 16 through 18. And while you're turning there, and we'll have it on the screens as well if you didn't bring your Bible with you today. By the way, if you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you one. You can head to the Welcome Center after the service and it would be our gift to give you the scriptures. Put them in your hands. So if that's not something you have in your home, we'd love to give you one so that you would have God's word with you. Now let me remind us of where we are in the Sermon on the Mount. So I've reminded you this pretty frequently, but it's pretty important as we work our way through this. Remember that Jesus began by talking to us about who we are if we are in him. So if we are Christians, if we belong to him, then he's talked to us about this is who you are. You are a people who are poor in spirit. You are meek. You are merciful. You are pure in heart. Yes, we remember this. That's where he started because it's always more important to start with who we are rather than what we do. We are not behaviorists as Christians. We are not people who believe that our status with God depends upon our ability to perform certain behaviors. So Jesus begins with who he has made us. All who are in Christ are these things. And then after talking to us about that, Jesus has begun to talk to us about what we do in light of who we are in light of how he has changed us and made us children of God and made us people who now don't wonder if we're loved, but know we are loved by God, who have gone from being the enemies of God through the cross of Jesus and his sacrificial work there to becoming the children of God. And it's important that we understand that because as we get into the things that we do, and we've already been talking about them the last several weeks, but in particular today, one of the possible bents that comes to us when we think about a discipline like fasting is that we can begin to believe that our relationship with God depends upon, our status with him depends upon performance in these areas. If I don't fast enough, if I don't fast correctly, if I don't give, we saw two weeks ago, if I don't pray, is what we talked about last week, that all these things become sets of rules and regulations for us. We are prone to turn spiritual works that God invites us into to shape our hearts. We're always prone to turn them into rituals that are no longer about him, but are about us performing well to get approval. It's always a danger. Yes, church? And the longer we're in church, the greater the danger there is because we are bent that way as human beings. Let me say that danger exists for those of you who haven't trusted in Christ, who are not Christians. That danger exists for you as well. Because until you surrender your life to Christ and say, I believe, and it's through that belief, through that faith, that I am made right before God because of what he has done, not what I must do. Until that takes place in your life, you're always going to be on the performance treadmill. 
You're always going to be like the hamster on the wheel, just spinning and spinning, trying to do enough to feel that you are good enough to be right with a God who is perfectly holy and righteous and it can never happen. So when you've been in church a long time, when you've not come to Christ at all, maybe it's your first time in church today ever in your life, maybe that's the case, you might find commonality in that there's this temptation towards a performance orientation and God just continues to want to guide us out of that. So even as we talk about spiritual disciplines today, let's remember where we are in the Sermon on the Mount. Who we are first, what we do second. Yes, church. All right, great. So now there are things we do, ways we live, disciplines we partake of because of what he has done. Now let's read Matthew chapter six, verse 16 through 18. Jesus says this, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others but by your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. All right, so that's our text today. And if I were gonna summarize the main teaching of that, the big idea that Jesus is conveying to us, it would be this. Christians fast in order to draw near to God, not to draw attention to themselves. Christians fast when they fast to draw, to draw their attention to God, not to draw attention to themselves. Now, in order to understand that, here's what I'd like to do. It's just three verses today, so it gives us a little bit of flexibility to understand that text, and it's a very simple lesson. But what we can do in order to more fully understand it is back up a little bit, and we're gonna start big, and then we're gonna work our way to small, okay? So what I wanna introduce you to is the idea of fasting across Scripture. I wanna give you a big picture view of how the Bible talks about fasting. And then I wanna work towards this specific lesson that Jesus is teaching here. Is that fair enough as a roadmap? All right, so that, let's do that. So let's start. The first thing I want you to notice, if you got the sermon notes, you'll notice the first point says, when, not if, you fast. Did you notice that twice in that text, Jesus says, when you fast, not if you fast. So in other words, he's stating an expectation that fasting is part of the normal Christian life. Now, in the Old Testament, here's how we're introduced to fasting. There's only one fast that is required by the law in the Old Testament, and I bet you could guess what it was if I gave you a couple guesses, and it's that on the Day of Atonement, which for the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, is the day they celebrated God's atoning, sin-forgiving work, and an animal was, you know, perfect lamb was sacrificed for that, and so on that Day of Atonement, the people were commanded to fast. The only time fasting is actually commanded under the Old Testament law. Now, over the years, the religious leaders added fasts to that. Now, Jesus doesn't commend or condemn that. He doesn't really speak to that, although you get the sense that perhaps this was more about their own sense of like trying to do more and more to, uh, to make themselves approved before God. But then also in the Old Testament, what we see is that time and time again, God's people either are called to fast, not as a part of the law, but just in relation to circumstances. So an oppressing, oppressive nation might come and attack them and they fast to seek deliverance from the Lord. We see fasts as repentance before the Lord for sins committed. So we see that in prophets like uh, Daniel and in Isaiah and in Jeremiah. And so again and again in the Old Testament, we see fasts and we see different kinds of fasts in the Old Testament. 
We see partial fasts where someone might say, I'm going to forgo certain delicacies. It might be like you or I saying, I'm not fasting from food completely, but I'm going to fast from dessert for a season. I'm not going to eat the richest of food. I'm going to eat more simple meals in this time. So we see partial fast. We see full fast where people go for certain periods of time with no food and sometimes for no water. We even see supernatural fasts in the Old Testament like Elijah and Moses being empowered by the Spirit somehow to go without not just food but water for 40 days. Do not try to go without food and water for 40 days. That's not medically possible, right? But it is if there's a supernatural thing happening, and in those very rare cases, that's what took place in those supernatural fasts. So we see communal fasts as well. That Day of Atonement fast would be an example of that, where the people together, it's not just an individual thing, but they together say, we are fasting in response to some need or some circumstance or as the law requires of us, we fast together. So you see all those kinds of fasts in the Old Testament. Now, let's ask this. In terms of what the Old Testament teaches us and shows us, we have to first, I probably should have started here actually, I maybe skipped over this. When I say what is fasting, the most normal kind of fast in the scripture is going without food for a certain period of time in order to draw near to God. So here's how I might define fasting. Fasting is going without a physical need or a physical comfort for, or you know, an enjoyment for a certain period of time in order to draw near to God. Now here's why I include both a physical need, like food, you're gonna find in the scriptures, fasting that's talked about is always food related. It's, there's no other kinds of fasts really talked about in the scriptures. But that doesn't mean that another kind of fast wouldn't be appropriate for us. That's why I include going without a comfort or going without uh, an enjoyment. You might fast from technology. You might fast from screens in your life. You might fast from you know, uh, buying certain things for a period of time. All of those are appropriate uh, demonstrations of a fast. Now, I do also want to note when I say the definition of fasting is that it's going without those things in order to draw near to God. It's pretty popular right now in kind of the fitness world to partake of intermittent fasting. You know, if you're kind of engaged in fitness, that's one of the trends right now, and it's, it's been a trend before as well. And that can definitely have physical benefits. But that kind of fasting is not biblical fasting. It's not wrong. There's nothing wrong with doing intermittent fasting as a health thing. But it's not biblical fasting. Why? Because it's not fasting aimed at drawing near to God. And that's different. I want to make sure we understand that. So if you are choosing to do an intermittent fast for the sake of your health, you can certainly maybe marry those two things together and turn it into a way of drawing near to God. But just because you're doing that doesn't make it a biblical fast. Let's make sure we understand that. And then the last thing I'll say is that our normal pattern is going without food, is not just going without food, but to take up that time where we would have been eating or perhaps if we're fasting from technology where we would have been watching something to turn our attention to meditating on scripture and prayer. Very simple. I mean, don't make it complicated. To turn our attention during that time to meditating on scripture and to prayer. That's what we mean when we talk about fasting. Now go back to what I said about Old Testament and how it gives us all these demonstrations of fasting. And we see all those. The question then becomes, well, we live under what we call the new covenant. And for those of you who are unfamiliar, what we mean by that is under the old covenant in the Old Testament, God had chosen a specific group of people through whom he always planned to send the savior of the world, Jesus. 
And he gave them a law to follow, and there were a couple of reasons for that, which I won't go into today because it would take too long. But he gave them a law, and they followed that law. And now Jesus has come, and we live under a new covenant that he's created, one where we're not subject to the law. We don't have to fulfill or keep the law, and yet there are principles within the law that are certainly right and good. We'd all agree, do not murder and do not steal are good principles, yes? Underneath the law, we still obey those. We still walk in them but we don't depend upon them for our righteousness. Now, under the new covenant then, do we still, is there still something to be gained through this discipline of fasting? You can tell by the way I'm talking already. I'm, I'm gonna tell you the answer is yes, right? Here's why. Matthew chapter six, the verses we just read. Jesus didn't say if you fast, he said what? When you fast. Not unlike what he had just said to us in the last two weeks. Last week he said when you pray, we all presume that we are supposed to be praying, right? And the week before that, he said, when you give to the poor and the needy, we would all, I think, be pretty uh, okay with the idea that the scriptures say we should be giving of our money to help the poor and needy. We should be giving of our money to gospel purposes. Well, here's a third one in that line. When you give to the needy, when you pray, and now when you fast. So I think what Jesus is doing is stating an expectation that this would be a normal part of the Christian life. Now, here's the difference. There is no law that we are under that requires us to fast for a certain number of days or with certain frequency or at a certain time, and yet that doesn't undo the fact that fasting is a spiritually beneficial discipline. Does that make sense? That's an important distinction to keep in mind. Matthew chapter nine, so just three chapters later, Jesus is questioned. Uh, John the Baptist's disciples and the scribes and Pharisees ask Jesus, why aren't your disciples fasting? They weren't fasting, but all these other people were. So why aren't they fasting? And Jesus' response is really interesting. He says, they're not fasting because I'm with them. This is a time for joy. This is a time for celebration. He says, do, the, do the, the attendants of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them using the idea of a wedding celebration? This is the time to party. This is a good time, time to celebrate. Then he says this, when I leave, then my followers, not just the disciples, but all those who would become his followers, when I leave, then my followers will fast. That will be a time for fasting. He's talking there about what we call in sort of, uh, in the church, what we call it the church age. In other words, the time where he would establish his church. He would die and rise and then ascend to heaven and he will come back again, amen, church? But until he comes back, he sits at the right hand of the Father and we await his return eagerly, and as we await, he has established for us this discipline of fasting as a way of growing in our spiritual lives, both together and individually before the Lord. I think that's what he's getting at in Matthew 9 when he says, then, that's when my followers will fast, when I'm not there with them. So we see those things, and again, no law or command as it relates to frequency, but an invitation to take up this spiritual discipline. Now, Let's ask this question as well. What's the purpose of fasting? And I've already alluded to it, but we need to make sure we get this really clear in our minds. Here's the purpose of fasting. The purpose of fasting is to know God more and to love him more. It's really simple. To know God more and to love him more. Now in a minute, I'm gonna walk you through a number of secondary purposes for fasting that the scripture talk about. All really good things, all reasons we might partake of fasting as a spiritual discipline, but none of them are primary when it comes to the purpose of fasting. 
Because if we get this backwards, we will begin to become ritualistic in our fasting or perhaps imagine that fasting is like the magic coin that we put in the slot machine of God and pull the lever and get whatever we want as a result. And that would be the wrong way to think about fasting. The difference, and this is true of every spiritual discipline, the difference between a spiritual discipline and a ritual that is dead is that God is at the center of spiritual disciplines and the pursuit of relationship with him. Intimacy with him, closeness with him, understanding and knowing him is at the heart of all spiritual discipline. The second, anything other than that is at the heart of our fasting, our prayer, our generosity and giving. Let the list go on of every discipline. The second, anything else takes center stage other than knowing and worshiping and adoring the God of the universe, it has become a ritual and it is dead. Now that doesn't mean stop doing it. It means recapture its purpose. You with me, church? So we have to emphasize that. It's the difference. It's how we see places like Colossians chapter two, verse 23. Paul, who's writing, now get this. Paul is saying to the Colossians, there are these people that want you to partake of these ascetic practices. And if you don't know what asceticism is, it's just the idea of beating your body down into submission, just like making things grueling, you know, withholding. So fasting would be a type of ascetic practice. And he says, those ascetic practices are of no value, of no value in condemning the indulgences of the flesh. That's how he puts it. In other words, they don't help you put sin away. Well, you have to think, well, how can he say that? Same guy, Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27. You know what he says there? I beat my body and make it my slave so that after preaching to others, I myself would not be disqualified. In other words, he's saying, I, I exercise physical discipline in my life. And the reason I do that is because it's valuable and beneficial for the sake of the gospel. Now, what's the difference between those two things? Why is he saying to the Colossians, these ascetic practices that you're being tempted to partake of are worthless, but I beat my body and make it my slave. And the difference is ritual versus spiritual discipline. When God is at the center of a spiritual discipline, it brings value and life and worth when it's about knowing him. Does that make sense, church? The same thing is true. The same thing is true. In Luke chapter 18, if you remember, Jesus is telling this story in Luke 18 too about this Pharisee who prays. And you remember how he prays if you've heard this story? He says, thank you, God, that I am not like other people. I, and then he lists all the things that make him so special to God. Isn't that a great way to approach God? Thank you, God, for how amazing you've made me. Right? If that's your pattern of prayer, please stop doing that. Right? And he points out a guy in the room. I mean, how arrogant. He's like, I think that I'm especially not like that guy, right? Can you imagine showing up at church on a Sunday and looking over on the out? Oh, 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 God, I am so glad I am not like, I'm not gonna point anywhere right now because that would be really dangerous, right? That's how he prays. And the first thing he lists, you know, he says, thank you, God, that I'm not like other men, but that I fast twice a week. In other words, there's nothing wrong with fasting twice a week. That's fine. But he's turned it into what? a ritual that makes him great. That's what we gotta be on our, and by the way, if, if you have a bent 
maybe you know this about yourself, towards a more legalistic approach. Like, you know, you hear about disciplines and you go, I'm gonna do that better than everybody. Like that's that, you have a really disciplined personality. I mean, that's great. I, I can admit I'm a little bent this direction as well. When I hear somebody say, do this thing, that I'm a little bent to being like, I'm gonna do it better and harder and stronger and fast. You know, that's, that's kind of how I'm wired a little bit. So I have to be very cautious and careful about turning discipline into ritual. Really dangerous. Now, friends, if you're maybe a little prone on the other side where not a lot of discipline in your life, please do not say, yeah, that's me, so I just won't do it. Recognize that you have to be on guard, you know, and, and Jesus is gonna give us another thing to guard ourselves against when it comes to fasting in the text that we read, and you can already see what it is, but we'll get to that in just a moment. The primary purpose of fasting always must be to know God, to treasure him. So now, that being the case, let's talk about some specific secondary purposes of fasting. They all fall underneath that heading, and I just wanna give you a few. I can't hit everyone that's here, but it's valuable to understand it. Kind of, again, we're still in that broad, like, what does fasting exist to do? So here's a couple of secondary purposes for fasting. Here's one, to prepare for a work of ministry. So you're getting ready maybe to go on a mission trip. You're getting ready to engage in a certain kind of work for the Lord. Maybe it's a weekly thing. You're teaching a Bible study or uh, you're doing some. I mean, it could be anything, right? Any form of ministry. Fasting in preparation for that has, uh, is a way of inviting God's power to move. It's a way of saying, we need you or I need you to do this work. I can't do it myself. My strength is nothing unless you, Holy Spirit, come and move. Nothing will take place. Luke chapter four, verse two is a great example. Our Lord and Savior himself demonstrated this for us because he went and fasted for 40 days in the wilderness before beginning his earthly ministry. So he fasted. Why did he fast? He fasted to prepare himself. And if you remember at the end of that, the devil comes and tempts him, right? And he is gone, he is hungry. The understatement of all scripture might be after fasting for 40 days, do you remember what the text says in Luke chapter four? And Jesus was hungry, right? <laughs> Imagine how you might feel for 40 days with no food, right? And so that's a great demonstration. Now, let me say this as well. Part of the reason to fast in preparation for ministry is because fasting is a sanctifying discipline. What I mean by that is that it shows us areas of sin in our own lives. You need to be prepared for this. If you begin to practice the discipline of fasting, one of the things you're gonna see is that it's gonna reveal some things about you you're not gonna want to see. So for instance, I just, I'll give, use my own example. Every time I fast, one of the things I find is by the end of the day, I'm pretty impatient with people. Like I get to my last meeting of the day, I'm not that prone to anger, so anger doesn't flare up, although in some people it does, but impatience flares up big time. By the end of the day, if you interact with me while I'm fasting, I, it's like gritting my teeth to bear with you and listen to you all the way through whatever you're saying. It's really challenging for me. But you know what that does? Here's what, here's what we're prone to think. We're prone to think, well, I haven't had food all day. I'm hungry. Of course, I'm gonna be impatient. Do you know what has happened? It's not that the fasting made me impatient. It's that the fasting revealed that there is impatience in me. That's what happened. That's in there. And the fasting revealed it. It showed it. And it's gotta die. One of the beauties of fasting is that it helps you see those things so that you might surrender to them to the Lord and then say, now, Lord, make me patient. Dangerous prayer, by the way. Make me patient. 
So whatever your, you know, whatever your issue is, maybe it's not impatience, something else, you can expect that it will start to come out as you fast, right? Be ready for that. Be ready to yield that before the Lord. Here's another, another secondary purpose, to discern God's will. To discern God's will. You got a big decision to make in your marriage, in your life, in your schooling, you know, whatever it may be. High school students getting ready to go off to college, like where do I go to school? Senior year, you're figuring out what's next, right? What a great thing to partake of fasting to discern God's will. In Acts chapter 13, verse two, I love this text. The church is fasting and praying and worshiping and through that fasting, God reveals that he wants to set apart Paul and Barnabas for a specific work. He actually says to the church, together they're fasting and he says, set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I have you know, prepared, the work that I've prepared for them to do. So the church does that and then you know what is in the very next verse, verse three? Acts 13, I love it. So they prayed and fasted and worshiped and then, they, and then they sent them. So did you see that? It was both that they would discern God's will through fasting to set their eyes on him and then he revealed to them what he had for them and then they fasted some more to prepare for that work, which I love. It's a wonderful demonstration of those first two things we see as purposes of fasting. Now, here's the third. Fasting is an expression of humility and repentance. Now, this is not one that I think we think about a lot, but again and again, we see this, in particular in the Old Testament, but also in the New. We see it in Joel, where he's calling prophetically his people to fast, the nation. He's saying, declare a fast, because we have done wickedly. We have rebelled against God. Nehemiah, before he returns and rebuilds the wall of Jerusalem, he fasts and prays in repentance, not in order that God would bless the work that he's about to go do, to prepare, but he fasts because he finds out that they are, the walls in disrepair because of the sin of the people. And perhaps most pointedly, in Acts chapter nine, verse nine, Saul, who is about to become Paul, meets the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. I don't know if you're familiar with this story or not. And when he meets him, the Lord says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's persecuting Christians, the church, but Jesus owns that himself and says, you're persecuting me, and Saul says, who are you? He says, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And that's the moment of, you know, it's the moment of Saul's conversion, changes his name to Paul. But the very next verses, Acts chapter nine, verse nine, says he fasts for four days. And I think what's happening there is that Saul is going through a transformation where he's recognizing his own sinfulness in persecuting the church, and he's repenting of that. And as part of that repentance, he partakes of a fast to humbly bow himself before the Lord and declare that he no longer wants to walk in the ways that he once walked. What a beautiful thing it would be as God reveals sin to us to allow a regular discipline of fasting in our lives to be a place where we say, I'm gonna respond to this conviction with fasting, asking you to change me and committing to walk in repentance for the thing you show me that I shouldn't do any longer. And then let's do two more. We could do many more, but let's just do two more. Another purpose for fasting is to learn to feast on God's word. Is to learn to feast on God's word. And this is the beauty of fasting, is when you fast, you're forgoing food, and at first, what you will really feel and think about is what you're denying yourself as you, as you fast. But as you learn to fast, you will find that you are actually not, not, you're fasting from food, but what you're really doing is feasting on true food. 
That's what you're gonna find. Luke chapter four, verse four. We already said that Jesus, it had said he was hungry. He had fasted for 40 days in preparation for ministry. But then when the devil comes to him and tempts him, and he says, turn this stone into bread, do you remember what Jesus' response is? He only gives a partial response, but the full, he says, man does not live by bread alone. And the completion of that verse is, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, my true food is God's word. You think I've been fasting, I've been feasting on the food that I truly needed. He says the same thing a little bit later on in John chapter four when he's talking to the Samaritan woman at the well and the disciples have gone off to get food and when they come back, they're surprised that he's talking to this woman who's not even from the nation of Israel and they're wondering what's going on and Jesus had this really in-depth conversation with her and then the disciples say to him, eat something and Jesus says, I have food to eat about which you do not know and the disciples in their regular pattern say, did he get some food from somewhere else? Who brought him a meal? And what Jesus is saying is, I've been feasting on God's word, feasting by doing God's work. So in other words, one of the things that we learn when we learn to fast is that we learn that we are truly having a feast. We're learning to love God's word. Now can I tell you, let me give you a heads up, as you begin to partake of this discipline, one of the things you're gonna find is as you go to prayer, at first it's gonna be hard because you're gonna be really distracted by your body. Like your stomach's gonna be growling, it's gonna be talking to you, and you're gonna be saying, it's gonna be saying, feed me, <laughs> like I need something. And you have to discipline your body in that moment. But here's the good news, and I wanna share this, you don't give up, because, and I'm, I'll say from my own experience, it's usually about 20 minutes in that there's a new level of concentration that will come. If you can stay in prayer and not let yourself get distracted and say, no, I'm, I'm staying in this, that after about 20 minutes or so, there's a level of focus and concentration that comes that you're able to, I mean, just keep meditating on God's word, keep reading it, keep talking to him, and you will find that that hunger subsides or moves to the background, and it's as if your mind is moved up and into a level of concentration on the things of God that is available to you, that God is meeting with you in that space. So stay with it. I just wanna help you with that expectation. Stay in it as you go to fast. And then the last thing, secondary purposes. The last thing we see is a, a secondary purpose is to ask God to rescue or deliver you or someone else from a difficult circumstance. So again and again, we see in scripture where there's some hardship, some difficulty taking place and God's people, they fast. Esther chapter four, verse 16 is a great example of this. Just to kind of summarize the story of Esther, uh, this whole book, there's a real bad guy named Haman who wants to destroy all the Jews and they're in this foreign kingdom. They're servants to a foreign king. Esther has become queen. She's married to this foreign king. So she has an opportunity to make an impact for the sake of God's people. And this bad guy, Haman, wants ever, all the Jews killed. Mordecai, who is Esther's cousin, sends her a note and says, bad things are going to happen to us. You need to intervene on our behalf. But it's really dangerous for her to do so because she's not allowed to enter the presence of the king unless he calls her. And so she's taking her life in her hands. And so in Esther chapter four, Mordecai says, please go and intervene on our behalf and talk to the king for us. And Esther says, I will do it, but have everybody fast. Ask every Israelite in the nation to, to stop eating, 
to stop drinking and to go before the Lord and to seek him on my behalf and on all of our behalfs. In other words, call upon him to say, we need you to deliver us. We can't deliver ourselves. Again, it's a statement of our helplessness before the Lord and our need for him. All right, so just let's summarize again. So fasting is a spiritual discipline which produces much good and is pursued for many good ends, all under the chief end of drawing near to God to know him more fully. So no law, no regulation that you are underneath. But church family, could I say this? Unless there's a medical condition that you have that would prevent you from fasting as a spiritual discipline, it would be a good thing for you to take this spiritual discipline up. It would be a good thing for you to begin to practice it. Maybe it's beginning with a meal and praying instead of eating that meal. You might move to a 24-hour fast, perhaps after that a 36-hour fast. But to begin to take up this spiritual discipline, um, and I, I won't go into all the details of it, you can start with drinking some fruit juices, and then you, know, you can move from that to only water for a time. But my encouragement would be, unless there's a medical condition, to begin to practice this spiritual discipline. There seems to be an expectation here that this is how we might live, that this is a discipline we might take up. Now, let me say there, even if there is a medical condition that would prevent you from doing that, and by the way, that's legitimate. If you have a medical condition that, that would prevent you from fasting from food, there's nothing that can prevent you from fasting from technology or some other indulgence, some other thing which is a good gift and a fine thing to partake of, but you might go without it for a season as a way of partaking this discipline. All right, now let's turn our attention to the specific, shall we? So let's ask Jesus, what is the specific lesson he's teaching us about fasting? And we touched on it at the beginning. And he's saying to us in these verses, when you fast, don't do it to draw attention to yourselves, but to draw, atten draw your attention to the Lord. So that's what we talked about first, the purpose of fasting, drawing our attention to the Lord. Let's talk about why we shouldn't draw others' attention to ourselves when we fast. So look back with me at Matthew 6, verse 16 through 18. Jesus is teaching us that we could actually lose our great reward in fasting. He's saying there's a reward. The Father who sees in secret will give you this reward if you fast in this way, but you can lose that reward. And how would you lose it? You would lose the reward by drawing others' attention to it. So here's what Jesus is just says. When you fast, don't disfigure your face like the hypocrites do. In other words, they do this to draw attention to themselves. And then what does he say? They have their reward. What's the reward? That other people think they're pretty spiritual. That's their reward. That's a terrible reward. And I'll tell you why. It's not just a bad reward. It's a dangerous reward. And I'll tell you why. When you try to draw other people's attention to you. We'll come back to that. He says, don't do that. He says, rather, wash your face. No, he's not saying do something special, like get yourself all, all you know, kind of dolled up. I can think of a better term. <laughs> Don't get yourself on it. That would be another way of showing that you're fasting, right? He says, just look normal. Just go through your normal routine, right? Take your shower, please, right? Just do the normal daily activity so that you look just like any other day. And he says, then your father who is in secret will see. Now, does the Lord know if you're fasting, even if you draw other people's attention to it? Yes. He's saying, but when you keep it in secret, what you are doing is you're focused on the conversation that you're having with him that day rather than on other people and what they think about you. There's something really special about private disciplines where you know it's just you and me, Lord. Just you and I are together in this moment. 
We are, we, I'm listening to you. My attention's on you and the specialness of knowing that the creator of the universe who sees all people and all things and knows all thoughts, his attention is also on you. That he would allow you to engage with him in such a private and intimate way. What a good gift. So that's what he's saying here. Now, that being the case, why do I say that it's dangerous? Why would I say it's dangerous? I mean, why not just say it's a lesser reward, right? Because we could say that. We could say, well, I mean, you get a reward. People think you're godly and maybe they'll come to you for advice or something. Here's why I say it's dangerous and not just a lesser reward. Two reasons. Number one is because if you lose the reward of intimacy with God, that's so important that the loss of that is devastating. That in and of itself, the loss of the great reward should be devastating as a thought to us. Oh, you mean I could fast and have other people think highly of me, but I wouldn't grow in intimacy with God at all from doing it? That immediately should make me go, I'm not doing it. I don't want that. If it doesn't make me grow in intimacy with him, I don't want it. So do you see how devastating the loss of that reward should be to us? Yes, that should be, that should be enough. But then the second reason why I think it's so dangerous is because you set yourself up to fail. Because here's what happens. You fast and make other people aware of it and they think, wow, what a spiritual woman, what a spiritual man, what a godly person. And now what you've done is in wanting them to see that, you've become hypocritical, which makes you grow spiritually? No, it actually weakens you spiritually. And at the same time you're weakening yourself spiritually, what are you doing? Giving the impression to others that you're here. And so the distance between the reputation you have and who you actually are grows. And do you know what that distance is? That distance is crushing. That is the weight that you have created that will destroy you and crush you because you can't live up to that expectation. And eventually the day will come when the reputation you have developed and who you actually are will be revealed. And when that comes, the weight of it destroys. You see what I'm getting at? That's why trying to develop a spiritual reputation by letting other people know about these private things that you do, that's why it's so dangerous. It's not, maybe think about it this way. It's not just like the difference between, again, lesser and greater reward. It's not like I said, hey, I've got ice cream and you can have pistachio, ugh, or you can have cookies and cream, right? I mean, pistachio, can we just all agree it's a terrible ice cream? Right, cookies and cream, greatest ice cream ever, right? It's like, they're both still ice cream though. So you might think, okay, well, I just got the lesser of the ice creams. That's not what this is. What Jesus is saying is this loss of reward, it's not better ice cream, lesser ice cream. It's you can have rat poison or you can have ice cream. That's, I'm serious. The reward that you get of other people thinking highly of you and your spiritual life, which is not backed up by who you actually are, that reward will kill you like poison. That's what he's getting at. So friends, let me close by saying this, okay? Hopefully we understand then we don't fast to be seen by others. That's a danger, don't do that, right? There's other dangers of fasting. Isaiah 58 tells us if we fast, but it's not, married with a desire to obey God, in particular, he says in Isaiah 58, to care for the poor and the oppressed. If we see injustice and do nothing about it and we keep fasting, do you know what God said through Isaiah about that? 
He said, do you really think that's the kind of fast I want? Couldn't care less that you're going without food. You're letting the poor and oppressed be poor and oppressed. Care for them. You don't do that, your fast is worthless, he says. There's all kinds of dangers that the scriptures point out in fasting. This is one of them that Jesus is giving us here when he says, don't do it to be seen by others. So friends, let me say this. We fast to draw near to God. Now some of you are not in relationship with God through Jesus. Maybe you're here, it's your first time. Maybe you're just checking out, you're skeptical, you're questioning. Can I say to you, my encouragement to you today would be do not fast. Because the first thing you need to do is understand that you cannot draw near to God unless you come to him through Jesus. But if you come to him through Jesus, if you sense that prompting in you right now, that's the work of the Spirit, what he's saying to you is, this whole sermon is about drawing near to me, and Christians, one of the ways they do that is through this discipline of fasting, but they do it because they already believe and have been brought near to me. Friends, your first step, if you are not in Christ, is to place your faith in him, and he will draw you near to himself. And then and only then would any kind of spiritual discipline be of any value at all. Believe. That's your call today. Believe. The finished work of Jesus on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin, to rescue you from the power of sin and the pleasure of sin, to take you out of condemnation and into salvation. Hear that loud and clear, please. Church family, those of you who believe in Jesus, my encouragement to you is to begin to take up the discipline of fasting or continue in it if you already have been, to continue in it. And here's your challenge. I would love for you to join me in this. Offer the same challenge to first service. Join me in fasting one day a week, whatever day you choose, one day a week for the next four weeks. One day a week for the next four weeks. We already saw communal fasts are a good thing. We see that in scripture. So I, I'm inviting you in to fast any day you would choose. I'll encourage you to a 24-hour fast. So eat your dinner one night and then do not eat again until 24 hours later. So you'd break your fast with dinner the next night. So you'll skip breakfast and lunch. Now, you may want to begin with one meal. You may want to choose to fast 36 hours, but I'll recommend a 24-hour fast. Drink water, perhaps juices if you want to do that. I want to encourage you to pray two things as you fast, and just very clearly and simply, when you go before the Lord, would you, one, pray that he would deepen your intimacy with him, just you and him, that he would draw you closer to himself, sanctify you, change you, transform you, seek him. And second, let's pray together as a church for our next season of life together. And let's ask him for a fresh move of his spirit among us fresh move of his spirit among us. Let's beg him. Let's plead with him. Let's ask him. Give us more. More people coming to salvation. More love for one another. More commitment to obedience to your word. More love for our neighbors. More openness and willingness to hear your word and to obey it. Just I'm getting too into specifics. The Lord will lead you. But pray for a fresh move of his spirit among us. I invite you to do that for the next four weeks together. Let's pray together and then we'll worship the Lord in song to close our time. Lord, thank you for how practical you are. You know we need it. You don't just always talk to us about big theoretical things. You talk to us about very practical day in, day out things like fasting and not doing it so that other people think we're pretty great. 
And you know we're prone to that, so thank you. We trust that your assessment of the things that we're tempted to be like and to do is an accurate assessment, and we admit it. We don't hide that. We couldn't hide it from you. So we pray that you would teach us how to take this up. We're used to being comfortable, Lord, and this discipline's one that makes us uncomfortable physically, and so we pray that you would help us to take it up in all the ways that are right, not as a ritual that would crush us and kill us, trying to earn your approval, but as something we partake of because we want to know you. We want to walk with you. We want to love you more. And we want to learn to feast on your word even while we forgo physical comfort in order to do so. So help us, grow us together as a body. Thank you that we can partake of things like this together. I pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.